0: You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra
1: University.
2: All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees.
3: All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
2: Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. This is the Wednesday edition of the Morning Wake Up Call, where we are talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your host Danny DiPresenzo, joined by Antonio Schoenhart, Joe Moriali, Yao Bonsu, and Jack Ferretti. In our first hour, Trump remains strong in South Carolina. Fast food delays cause frustration nationwide, and the impact of the Capital One Discover deal. All that and more. You don't want to miss it. Good morning, fellas. No Emily today, but it's the Guys Club. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it, baby. How are Let's we? Do how it. are we this morning? How doing are well. we
4: this morning? Doing, doing? Well, doing good to hear it. Doing good to, good to say it. the least. Doing well. It seems like this time of year is always a down period, just in general. Like, I know we have primary stuff to discuss, and we'll obviously get to that, but. I don't know if it's just the sports world or the entertainment world. It just seems like a down year. Not a lot to, not a lot going on.
3: Well, Super Bowl, of course, just happened, so that's obviously a big thing that just ended. Well, yeah, and the
4: NBA's on break. Obviously, the NHL's back, but even then, beyond the world of sports, because I don't want to harp on sports. Also, like dead
3: season for media. Not a lot of stuff
4: happens in yeah. February, February. Yeah, February yeah. Everyone the, just but, spent their money. But there's still a good amount of news to dive into today. Well, obviously, it was literally that. my birthday last week. What are you talking about? How do you celebrate? Happy belated birthday! Uh, I went brother.
2: home. I went home. You went Thank home. You. That's good. That's yeah, the that's best good. gift you could ever ask. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm glad you got to do that. Yeah, so it's it'll it'll get better. You know, March will bring some madness. excitement, I'm sure. And madness, of course. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to move away from sports for now, and we're going to go to the weather because it was a cold one this morning. I don't know about you. I always know it's cold whenever I have to clear off my car yeah, so... before I drive here. So we're going to go to Joe Moriale with the weather this morning. What's going on in the sky?
5: Yeah, so for today's weather forecast, it's currently 24 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. Up in the sky, it's a cloudy morning, and uh, for the rest of the day, it should remain cloudy with a low chance of precipitation, though. The expected high today is 41 degrees during the day and a low of 22 tonight. All right, thank you so much. It's it's still frigid out there,
2: and I, I can't take it anymore. There was one last week my car wouldn't even start for a little bit it was so cold it was just brutal you heard me say that on air and i had to clean it and everything it was it was a disaster
4: is it usually I've, your car kind of freezes uh, over? Like for me, the windshield is just kind of sparkly and very icy to the point where the the wipers don't really do anything. You yeah, gotta turn on the heat.
2: That's the that's yeah. the problem. And then obviously with the snow we've been getting, it's also transitioned into oh the top is covered in snow. Yeah. The windshield yeah. is covered in snow. Mm-mm. The doors have ice on it, so it's it hurts to
3: to even open the door. I woke yeah. up this morning, left my water bottle in the car. I could I, I could I could break a window with it right frozen. now. It's frozen set. <laughs>
0: Oh, wow. That's, that's brilliant. You know, one of my housemates, she, uh, she just got a, uh, an electric car. And I didn't realize it until I saw somebody with it. But for, the, for those cars to actually heat up and be able to like, function properly takes way longer. Really? Way longer of a setup, even though they're newer cars. But when it's like, really that cold outside, like, you, have to, you have to leave that thing running for at least a half hour. It's crazy. Yeah, so that, that, that news headline we're going to start with is,
2: it's cold. But we're going to move on to the, to, the bigger news, to, to, the, to the bigger news that is affecting our world and our country. I'll take that from here. So the United States yesterday vetoed and thereby tanked an Algeria-backed United Nations Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. For any binding resolution to pass, it needs unanimous approval. The other 13 member states of the council voted in favor. The United Kingdom abstained. America's UN ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, sharply criticized the council for taking this aforementioned vote.
3: Proceeding with a vote today was wishful and
6: irresponsible.
2: After the vote failed, Algeria's representative said that, quote, the Security Council failed once again. In its own resolution, the United States has called for a temporary pause in hostilities between Israel and Hamas. And warned israel not to go forward with its planned invasion of Rafah. prosecutors announced yesterday that two adults have been arrested in connection to the deadly shooting as the at the kansas city Chiefs super bowl victory parade earlier this month and charges were also announced the two shooters will each face charges of secondary murder two counts of armed criminal action and unlawful use of a weapon jackson county prosecutor gene peters baker in announcing the charges also outlined what led to the shooting
1: that argument Very quickly escalated to Mays drawing his firearm, a handgun. Almost immediately, almost immediately, others pulled their firearms.
2: Last night, Axios scooped that House Democrats are kicking around the idea of protecting Republican Speaker Mike Johnson should he face a motion to vacate. Centrist New Jersey Democrat Josh Gottheimer authored a resolution currently making the rounds that would require either party's leadership to sanction any vote, calling for the removal of the Speaker. With the GOP's majority in the House growing thinner by the day and the saga involving Kevin McCarthy's removal still fresh, some Democrats have suggested that they would oppose another push from the right-wing conservatives to oust Johnson. The Speaker is facing pressure to put a vote on aid on the floor with some members of his conference, like Marjorie Taylor Green, saying that kind of vote is a red line.
1: What I have voted against is funding a war in Ukraine. I, the entire time, I have been saying the United States needs to be pushing for peace in Ukraine, not funding a proxy war with Russia. We can't afford another foreign war.
2: And finally, the Alabama Supreme Court made an emphatic and consequential ruling on Monday that declared frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. The decision was handed down in a pair of wrongful death cases brought by three couples who had frozen embryos destroyed in a fertility clinic accident. The judges not only cited a 19th century law, but also the Bible. Critics say that the decision could have wide-reaching implications that could jeopardize certain fertility treatments like in vitro fertilization. Appearing on CNN, the president and CEO of the National Inter Tutility Association, Barbara Colura explained the potential consequences of this decision.
1: You can't even see it with the naked eye. You need a microscope. So now the court is saying that that's a person. Can we freeze embryos? I don't know. Can you freeze a person? What will happen uh, to all of those embryos? What will happen to people who need this care?
2: And ladies and gentlemen, those are your headlines. Can we just can we just stay on that That was unbelievable when i read that
4: yeah Yeah. wrongful death cases i I went back and watched the full interview um from the clip and it was just heartbreaking to hear how she was describing how the situation went down and the consequences even in that clip there it really could change precedent as far as what we see in these treatments so it's wild and i want to recognize
2: yeah we're all guys talking about this this doesn't impact us because we can never have children ourselves but Think about all the couples nationwide who rely on special fertility treatments to actually conceive and now this state ruling that could have precedent in other states could potentially get in the way of that. We're already seeing the saga with Mif- Pristone and Mysoprostal play out at the Supreme Court. They're going to decide on that this term and now potentially you could very well see this making it to the court if not this term, the next term. This is a serious issue.
4: It could fear. It could. It could spark fear in other couples looking to go through these treatments, as far as in vitro fertilization or other fertility fertility features or methods. So yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be wild because seeing seeing this play out, another couple can look at this and be more hesitant to take part in these fertility treatments. So yeah, it, it's it's wild. Yeah, it's wild.
2: And this calling something that you need a microscope to see a child. that that to me goes a little too far it's it's frozen embryo the the people freeze things for fertilization all the time i i I can't see it i can't see it personally and i hope that this is not the final word on the issue Uh, but speaking of politics we're going to be moving on to the presidential race or honestly the lack thereof Uh, on the republican side at least former president donald trump has had a lot of unflattering press over the past two weeks he made his controversial comments on nato He has to witness the financial and logistical mangling of his business empire, and most recently, his utter failure to condemn Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, and the death of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, instead making the Russian dissident's death all about himself in a truth social post. He basically said, I see what happened with Navalny. It reminds me how America is declining. What? I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. We can talk about that later. But despite all that and more, he's poised to mop the floor with his last remaining GOP rival, former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley, in her home state. A hot-off-the-presses USA Today Suffolk University poll has Trump leading by an almost 2-to-1 margin, 63% to 35%. Though Haley has sharpened her critiques of Trump as of late, her more aggressive language does not seem to be moving the needle. The 538 polling average has Trump in the mid-60s and Haley in the low 30s in South Carolina. It appears the race for the GOP nomination is all but over. Fellas, what are we thinking about this? Is this even worth talking about at this point? Because we've been seeing this consistent theme of polling with Trump at a massive advantage for so many months now.
4: As far as the truth social post, it may not be worth talking about because... Trump could be an Alcatraz, and he's, and he's still going to have supporters. But on the Nikki Haley side, the real question here is, what does she have to do to make up ground, considering that she's not going to drop out of the race? She had a rally yesterday in South Carolina, obviously that home her home state where she was governor, and it was around a crowd of 150 people. There were two dozen black uh, people there in the audience, and then those people ended up being protesters. So my immediate answer to the question I just presented was, can't she tap into the black community to get these votes, because especially in South Carolina, it is such an important base for Democrats. But her past precedent and the kind of things that she ruled in favor of in the past has kind of caused uh, skepticism among the black community. You had, uh, I think it was Reverend Joseph Darby. He's the former first vice president of the South Carolina NAACP. He said that she cast her very conserv- conservative and right-wing Republican Party um, narratives when she wrote first ran for office in a very harsh way. She had no outreach to the African-American community. He thought that she would never reach out to the black community, which she really still has it. And when you speak to a lot of black leaders and black voters in South Carolina, they note the fact that she refused to expand Medicaid while she was in office. They note the fact that she had a strict abortion ban in the state of South Carolina. So the last hope for me for Nikki Haley was that African-American community, which, of course, is not going to make up all the vote come the primary in the state. But it would it would have allowed her to make up some ground concerning the fact that no matter how The South Carolina primary goes she's still not gonna drop out of the race
2: so here's my piece on that so it's telling that Tim Scott a black man who she appointed to the United States Senate is not endorsing her who has he has been team Trump to a hilarious degree as we all saw at the New Hampshire victory uh, rally and the other thing that that is important to note is that because the South Carolina primary for the Democrats was really early this year a lot of those black voters you could pick which one you can vote in. It's one of those semi-open kind of states. A lot of them already cast their ballot for Joe Biden. So these black voters who may be on the – say they're on the fence about Biden, they're willing to vote in the Republican primary because it's competitive, they're not even available, let alone all the realistic and legitimate concerns that you just brought up, Yao. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is her math is just, yeah. it's just abysmal because not only talking about uh, the racial breakdown, Trump has a double-digit advantage in this poll – every age group those with high school degrees college degrees and he also holds a lead among military families and why that's important yeah yeah i think i want to let you talk about why that's important
4: the military family? Yeah, because wha- well, yeah, well, yeah, what, did Trump
2: say, what did Trump say about the military lately?
4: Oh, Trump. We have,
2: we have the sound for it.
4: Trump is, Trump is attacking, personally, Nikki Haley's husband, who's actually serving right now in Africa, so it's pretty harsh the way Trump spoke about her, but here, here he is talking about Nikki Haley's husband, Maj.
2: Alright, let's take a listen.
0: Where's her husband? Oh, he's away. He's away. Where, what happened to her husband? What happened to her husband? Where is he? He's gone. He knew he knew
2: he's gone he's serving overseas doesn't make doesn't make any sense uh we're gonna we're gonna bring in the other team
0: members to this conversation anything you guys want to add yeah you know the first thing i'll just say is like at this point for all intents and purposes you know first of all even going into this uh you know the gop elections it would kind of seem as if nikki haley needed a hail mary but at this point she's chucking it from the parking lot I mean in the latest polls coming out even just over the weekend, even as as early as, as, as Monday, Trump's over her eighty one to eighteen in terms of in terms of, of you know uh in, in terms of GOP voters. What, Trump has poll, a, what poll is that? Uh the morning consult poll. Uh Emerson College's poll shows it at seventy seven to thirteen. Is that nationwide or uh yes, it is it is a nation uh wide poll. And it's just like if you if you look at the at the trend on this graph right here. it it it, it's 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 incredible i mean you there there is absolutely like looking at it from a face value there is absolutely no reason for nikki haley to even be in this race anymore and i I genuinely have this question that maybe one of us in here can answer what is her end game because there is no way she comes out with a victory even in her home state what is her end game what's the point of staying in this i want to
2: go to i want to go to joe but to that point at that rally you were talking about, yeah, I think there was the the whole rumor that she might have dropped out when she was talking about that. But she was saying, "Oh, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I don't worry about my political career." So I think she's just on a a, a mission of self destruction because there's no way that if Trump remains the face of the party, she can ever find a role in any presidential administration ever again or have any sort of political career. I want to go to Joe yeah, on this. Yeah, I, I
5: agree with that. And that, and now her um her rhetoric towards Trump has been getting uh, harsher and harsher. She's making a point to be seen as, as like Trump's main enemy. I know she's the last um, Republican left in the primary race, but I'm wondering if if you think voters think it, it, that any of that is genuine, given her past. Like, we've seen a, a whole line of, of Republican foes for, for Trump, uh, you know, bash him throughout their entire campaigns, and as soon as they drop out, they endorse him. Well, nobody is saying the things that Nikki Haley's saying now. I mean, remember early
2: in the primary season, everyone was just, they would love it if they can go through a campaign event or a rally or a TV interview without having to talk about Trump. But now she has to take him on. And she's hitting him on the Navalny stuff. She's hitting him on the the husband comments. She's hitting him on chaos. That's her big theme. We even heard that in New Hampshire that she says chaos follows him. But that's only winning Haley's support with people who identify as liberals or moderates. She has a 59 to 38% lead. She also has a narrow lead among first-time voters, so clearly she's making inroads there. But here's the thing, guys: you need Republicans to win the Republican primary. You need conservatives. Seems common sense. You yeah. need conservatives to win a conservative political party. It, it makes perfect sense, which is why the New Hampshire theorem was her best shot because it had a lot of people who weren't uh, typical Republicans. But she now she's going to South Carolina, one of the most conservative states in the country. Thinks she can just run it back. With what she did in New Hampshire. There was a Trump campaign memo that came out just the other day that said if Haley got forty three percent in every state from South Carolina on, Trump would still have the nomination in mid March.
4: Forty three percent.
2: Which is not bad, and a lot of these states have proportional allocation of delegates. But some states like California, which used to now change the rules so that it's a winner take all and that's the you know, the big prize. So she she has no pathway, and I like what you brought up, Yeah, that her, her outreach to certain vital constituencies is not falling through. And Trump seems to have every advantage across the board, just because he's, I don't even know how to describe it. He's, he's just a
4: powerful figure. No, never before have we seen a Republican lose the first two primary contests by an average of 21 points the way Nikki Haley has, and then have gone on to win the party's presidential nomination. It just doesn't happen. And yes, Haley spending more than $500,000 on ads and has a crazy travel schedule that features 11 stops in seven days after the South Carolina primary. And that's all great. At least 10 high dollar private fundraising events as well. But there just isn't a path for her to win this nomination. And I mentioned the African-American community. It's not just them. It's a majority of minority communities. And Danny mentioned the fact that a lot of those black voters are gone anyway. And that hurts because one fourth of South Carolina's population is black. And an even tinier fraction of that make up the Republican electorate. So when you look at the fact that President Biden already took a lot of those voters and won by over 95 percent, I think it was back on February 3rd, Nikki Haley is not left with a lot of people to get that type of support. And I think it was a Monmouth University Washington Post poll it found that black, Hispanic, Asian voters only make up 8% of GOP primary voters in South Carolina. And even from that population, Trump had 47% of the support.
2: Yeah, and the, the one thing on that too, we talked about how those voters aren't even available and they're not. there are not that many of them. In New Hampshire, because it wasn't a sanctioned Democratic primary, a lot of Democrats who aren't typically high on Biden said, well, I just, I'm just i just going to be an independent and vote in a competitive Republican one. You don't have that anymore. That was the one aberration in the primary calendar where you had a sizable population of people who could say, well, I'll just vote in the Republican one because it actually matters. That and doesn't... still she was blown out. And still she was blown out by double digits. Not terribly like she was in Iowa, but still a double job. I want to go to Antonio, and then we're
0: going to move on yeah, to the next story. quickly, because I have an Emerson College uh, poll that was literally just released yesterday, actually pulled up, uh, that, sh- that finds that South Carolina f- uh, voters actually see uh, President Donald Trump with a 23-point lead over former Governor Nikki Haley with the um stats coming in to 58 percent to 35 percent seven percent of those are undecided and with the undecided voters support accounted for trump's support increases to 61 percent and haley's goes to 39 now here's the here's the interesting part here according to spencer kimball the executive director of emerson college polling he goes on to say quote voters who affiliate as republic republicans break for trump over haley 71 to 29 percent while voters who affiliate as independent break for Nikki Haley 54% to 46%, and then going on off of that, Trump's support is highest among voters under 40 with 69%, while Haley's support is highest among voters in their 50s at 48%. And then even moving on into, in, into, into you know degrees and and uh, level of education, Haley does lead that 52% to 48%, but she trails among postgraduates. 43% to 57% so Even if her whole you know plan for South Carolina is to if we could call it a plan Yeah, if we could even call it a plan like I said, this is a desperation She's she's chucking a ball from the parking lot at this point it Her if her whole plan out of desperation is to try to go for the independent vote Even on that she gets nowhere near to the numbers that Trump's gonna pull in off of these votes according to to, to multiple polls. Yeah,
2: you need to win Republicans and she's not winning Republicans but, She should run in a different parties primary, but
0: then doesn't that bring up a different question though? Because realistically if you look at the GOP right now, it, it it's like a party split in two. It, it's it's not, not necessarily it's a, party a Republican
2: split. It's two-thirds Trump the other third yeah. people are, are anti-Trump, but and this is the last point then we're gonna move on to the second story Yeah, I was gonna take us in the fact of the matter is Not only do we see these numbers bear out in the elections the primary elections But now Trump is on the verge of appointing his loyalists to run the RNC. So you could expect a purge of any non-Trump people in that organization within a year. And then it really is the Trump party, not only in the grassroots, in the candidate, but also in the party apparatus. That's that's something to consider as we move forward. Haley could be the last of a Republican who really dares to even challenge that orthodoxy in the Trump Republican Party. So that's going to be our end of this discussion. Good luck to Nikki Haley. You're definitely gonna need it. And now we're gonna move on to Yao to bring us into our second story. It also relates to Trump, but it's a more interesting, nuanced debate about American politics. Yeah. Yeah.
4: One of the one of the main things that former President Donald Trump is running on is Christian orthodoxy and Christian nationalism. In a memo from his team, his group, it says that Christian nationalism is one of the priority items. And Trump himself has echoed these sentiments, vowing to bar immigrants who, quote, don't like our as in American religion, right? New political reporting found that this think tank close to GOP frontrunner Donald Trump is synthesizing plans to make Christian nationalism a theme. But this is why it's particularly interesting. When you guys think about a Christian nation, a lot of people think the United States was founded on values of being a christian however when you look at the constitution it does not establish it as an official religion in fact there's a lot of articles in the constitution that points out the fact that it's not exactly christian values that's going to be a building block for the country but rather just freedom of any religion and that's what that's what's implied there article 6 of the constitution states no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. And I want you even look at the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So those two pieces from two historic documents, obviously, kind of point out the fact that when you look at the country as is, it was built on religious freedom. And we can go all the way back to the 20th century and the Supreme Court and how it how how, it, how it's reasoning behind certain First Amendment cases involving religion, made sure that public confer- conversion of religions wasn't banned, reimbursing funding for religious education was allowed, and sponsoring prayer in public schools, all of these things. But the bottom line is, Trump has an idea that this country was built on a religion in which certain historical documents, that's not the
2: case. So I want a quick piece on that, and I'll open up the debate. So... I think we can all agree, though, that Trump, the thrice-divorced New York Playboy, is not necessarily the paragon of Christian religion. It's it's really the people that he enables that are around him that push him in this direction. Because the guy who runs this uh, Center for American Renewal, Chris Russell Vaught, he was a member of the first Trump administration. He's a likely chief of staff pick. And he's somebody who believes that Christian values in this country are under attack, which we can get into later. The other thing too is that while Christian nation implies that Christian values and Christian virtues should be prevalent in not only public life but in government, that's not ignoring the influence of religion in our nation as a whole. It's very clear that many societies in the West have been influenced whether completely directly or in some ways indirectly by Christianity. That's not that's not up for debate, that's just the fact of history. However, how a nation interprets the the role of religion in its society is a completely different matter, and uh, and and Yao is completely right. America has been very clear in that there's a separation between church and state, going back to the Constitution and then the famous Thomas Jefferson letter. So I want to open it up to you guys. What do you, uh, Joe and Antonio, what do you guys think about this whole debate and the fact that there is a presidential candidate who has a think tank closely associated with him, formulating a priority action item related to Christian nationalism?
0: Well, I mean, I just, I just want to say this. I mean, the, the, the history, this is where some people really need to go take a history class. The history of our entire country is when, when, when people started first arriving here from, from, from England, they were escaping religious prejudice. That was one of the main reasons for them coming here. America has been built on the fact of expressing your religion. There hasn't been a set-in-stone religion ever, you know, nominated, ever, ever put into official writing. Sure, Christian religions or dominations of Christian religions have kind of been here the longest, quote-unquote, I guess. And they're the majority of Americans. Yeah, exactly. But still, that doesn't make it, it doesn't make us a Christian nation. If it was a Christian nation, every time we say the... Uh, you know the pledge of allegiance. We'd be saying the Our Father right after or right before. We don't do that. If we were a Christian nation, every single school across the entire country would give students a Bible. We don't do that. If if we were a Christian nation, every single American citizen would go through the sacraments of baptism, communion. Conf- well, that's, well,
2: that is just it, Catholic. Well, though. that's just yeah.
0: Catholic. But it, well, baptism. Yeah, uh, in general, That's baptism. Yeah. All Christian denominations get baptized, but you are you are correct. But everyone would be baptized. That isn't the case. We are not a a a, a country built on Christianity. Sure, it may have had influence, heavy influence, but but it, we are not a a, a a quote Christian nation, as Trump is saying,
2: or as Trump. He's not saying it. It's more so he's. And he's basically associating himself with people who are saying
0: right. And and now my whole idea into this has to be this is just a way for him to to win more votes. It has to be. And and I don't necessarily know if it's the right way to go down because uh, listen, I was always told to at any family dinner the two things you never talk about is politics and religion. And then now you want to mix the two. And we're talking about both of them on this show. Yeah,
2: blasphemous,
5: blasphemous. (laughs) Joe, do you have anything to add on this? um I'm just interested in in like the statistics say that Christianity is dwindling, especially among um, like Gen Z. Because Compa- well, that's
4: the key, though. Religion in general that's is declining. That's among what Gen leads Z. people
5: like Vaught to feel this way.
4: Mm. But but here's the thing, though: the Constitution. We know it's a secular document, right? But the founding fathers did not want to create a secular government because they disliked religion. They knew the dangers of a powerful state like the U.S. backing or requiring an official religion, right? They had the studies way before they even did the Constitution and put in part these official documents. And they have seen firsthand religious wars, persecutions in Europe over religion. So when you think back to the American colonial period, there are a bunch of alliances between religion and government. Church and state were united and that produced oppression and a tyranny that the founding fathers did not want to see. So when I think about Trump saying this, I think that he's trying to create an environment, and I know this is probably not his intention, but it can lead to an environment where we're seeing these dangers again. I'm not saying there's going to be a religious war, but there certainly is going to be a lot of dialogue if he's trying to push the Christian ideals onto Americans. Well, and that's where I think
2: the problem comes that from. That can influence policy, that can influence where federal funds go. I want to end on this point point. If anyone, ha- if it, uh, and when we can react to it quickly. So here's the thing. So people talk about the the idea of America as becoming a less Christian nation. There was an interesting YouGov poll that asked Americans, what do you think the breakdown is of certain groups? Respondents assume that 30% of Americans are Jewish, 27% are Muslim, 21% are transgender, and 20% earn more than a million dollars in a year. But in reality, all of those groups account for less than 2% of the population. Americans don't really understand the ethnic and economic breakdown of their own country. And the idea of Christians being persecuted when they're, they have been and continue to be the majority of people in this country, especially white Christians, I feel like that is a complete lack of self-awareness. But the thing is, Christianity lends itself to this persecution narrative because what's the central event of Christianity? The persecution of its central figure, Jesus. So you could always tie that back in. I mean, every many religions have this idea of persecution and in some cases martyrdom. Mm-hmm. But the, the narrative... The narrative that people can always tell themselves is we are we are being persecuted just like Jesus, and the fact is people can say God has God gave us this purpose to make America a Christian nation. You can always rationalize it with God, and there have been many rationalizations with God over the years in American history. Manifest destiny, uh, the city on a hill, right? These these ideas are still a thing, but it's this subset of conservative evangelical voters, those movement conservative voters, people like Vaught, who are trying to turn that idea that is not popular with the general population into the policy platform of a presidential administration. and That's where this, as you guys have been saying, goes over the historical precedent line. Any yeah. final reactions before we move on?
4: That, that number you pointed out, those stats that you pointed out, Americans thought that 30% of Americans were Jewish, 27 were Muslim. That alone, Americans on average thought that 57% of the country was either Jewish or Muslim. That, that That's just a crazy number to me. And for Danny to say that Americans are not really in tune with the ethnic makeup of the country, he couldn't be any further from—well, um, he actually is. He's very close to the truth. Let's flip that around. Couldn't be any close closer to, to the truth. Couldn't <laughs> be any closer yeah. to the truth. But, yeah, that's to, to see Americans and how out of touch they are with the ethnic makeup, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting because now if Trump is trying to push Christianity— Now he looks better knowing that Americans think that most people in America are not Christian. That's where the problem comes in. Mm
5: -hmm.
2: This idea of feeling like you're being outnumbered, I think that's the key sentiment here. People like Vaught are trying to push that narrative that Christianity is under attack
3: just because there are... A the, there, are, there are there are variety of religions i think there is an argument that they are still in the minority i mean we look back to like even like the colonial times like churches were publicly funded like most of every town that we knew had one like at the center of the stage it was a very public thing yeah
2: and then and, there's also the concurrent culture of some colonies where there was complete religious toleration yeah. which in many was was unheard of for most of human history.
3: But now if we look. I mean, like if we look nowadays, a lot of these churches have like built commercial spaces on their church grounds, or their towns are acting to publicly support churches.
2: Mega churches, televangelists, Christianity is a booming business.
3: Yeah, and back then they only didn't, and they were they were taxed back then. They they're not even taxed now because there was no fear back then. Yeah. They just don't want them to die. die yeah. It's
2: an interesting through line. Unfortunately, I uh, I think we could talk about this for the rest of the hour. We have to move on, and we're going to move on to Joe, who brings us a very timely and very strong interview for Black History Month. So, take it away. Give us the give us yeah, the lead so in.
5: February being Black History Month, uh, <laughs> it can encourage us us to showcase significant aspects of American history that were underreported for centuries. Hall of Fame baseball player Oscar Charleston is one of those stories. Within the inner circles of baseball fans, Charleston is regarded as one of the greatest outfielders of all time. However, his career as a player and a manager spanned from 1915 until 1954, a time when America was segregated. He never had the privilege of playing in a World Series or attracting the attention of his white contemporaries like Ruth Gehrig or Ty Cobb garnered. Like many Negro League ballplayers, Charleston's legacy after his death has become a mystery. Through many embellished secondhand accounts, stories of Negro League baseball have towed the line between history and mythology. I sat down with Jeremy Beer this week, author of the first biography on Oscar Charleston, published in 2019 with the goal of preserving the legacy of an overlooked American sports hero.
1: The Frequency 88.7 FM. The Call Letters WRHU. The The Website website. WRHU.org. Hofstra's Hofstra's Morning morning Wake-Up Call. Morning Wake-Up Call. Lively Talk. Long Island Life. National national News. news. International Issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students.
5: This is Joe Morial reporting for WRHU. Today I'm speaking with Jeremy Beard, author of the award-winning biography titled Oscar Charleston. The life and legend of baseball's greatest forgotten player uh jeremy first off can you just tell me what drew you towards oscar charleston's story uh in particular
7: what drew me uh to the story was uh that i discovered oscar was from indiana where i am from as well and it it really shocked me and bothered me that i'd never heard of him i would have been in my at least late 30s at this time and uh sports loving guy with a lot of sports loving friends and very sort of patriotic about Indiana sports. And we thought we knew all the great players from our state in various sports and, uh, had never known Oscar's name until I ran across it. Um, in a list that a guy named Bill James put together, Bill James, a famous baseball historian, kind of the father of, uh, modern analytics. Uh, the, um, If people have seen the movie Moneyball, he's referenced uh, in in the movie and also, of course, in the book. Uh, Bill James uh, had his list of the top 100 players of all time. And fourth is a guy named Oscar Charleston, and I'd never heard of him. So the fact that i had never heard of Bill James' fourth greatest player of all time and he's from my home state made me very much interested in his story.
5: I I actually had a... um a similar way of of finding out about oscar i was reading um in 2020 the uh uh, joe poznansky top 100 players and he had a whole anecdote at the beginning like you know you may not have heard of this guy but he's he's worthy of my selection he had a whole argument Um, oscar's also now he's one of the 37 negro league players in the uh baseball hall of fame uh but the level of competition for the negro leagues is still like People, it's a little unclear. People are always debate yeah. whether it's up to par with the American League at the time. Right. Um, so what could you tell some of today's fans um, mm-hmm. to kind of add some perspective of how great Oscar truly was as, as a ball player?
7: Yeah, so I'll, I'll speak to the quality of play issue first. It, it, recently, Negro League statistics were elevated to Major League statistics uh, by Major League Baseball, so they're like, you'll know, find them everywhere now. Um, I think it's very clear that the best... Um, the top third, half, sometimes two thirds of Negro Leagues rosters was every bit as good as American League or National League rosters. Um, it is where the best uh, uh, African American athletic talent kind of went during that period. It wasn't a lot of competition for that talent from other sports. You know, football and basketball really weren't going yet. And and we're talking about now like the teens or the aughts, nineteen aughts teens up to the thirties and forties. Um, so the top part, they just weren't as deep their rosters. Uh, they would have some people who would consider triple A or double A sort of on their, on their roster. So I, that's how I think about them. But I think it was the right decision to elevate them to major leagues. because of the, uh, how strong, uh, the top parts of, of Negro leagues rosters were. So was Oscar, then the question is, was he as good as people claim? And I think it's actually very reasonable and fair to be skeptical. Um, that's kind of how I went into it actually, this project. And, um, I think the truth is, yes, he was. So what people don't realize is black teams played white teams all the time, pre-integration, pre-Jackie Robinson. They played barnstorming, exhibition games before the regular season, after the regular season, sometimes during the regular season. And so we actually have statistics from those games. And we know the Oscar, for instance, is not a huge sample size, but in like about the equivalent of a third of a season's worth of statistics did better against major league pitching and legit major league pitching than he did against, um, uh, Negro leagues pitching. And, and we also know that generally speaking Negro, the Negro leagues teams or black teams won more than five, 50% of their games against white teams. So there's a couple of statistics. And third, we just have the opinions of people from the time white and black about Oscar, uh, and people like Dizzy Dean, uh, who is from Arkansas, uh, said he was one of the greatest players he'd ever seen. Um, a fellow uh, um, who owned the Kansas City team in the Negro Leagues. I'm blanking on his name, I'm sorry. But he was uh, not the greatest of guys. He was actually a member of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> he said that T- Oscar Charles was one of the greatest players he'd ever seen, white or black, were the greatest player he'd ever seen. So we have like just a number of um, uh, anecdotal and statistical reasons to believe and not only Oscar, but the, the the again the the good to great Negro leagues players were were great players in any league. Uh, Oscar was Willie Mays before Willie Mays, and the best back black players absolutely were as good as they're claimed to have been. So he was
5: so successful in, in a in a time when when America was segregated, and there was he was always facing adversity compared to the white players. What what do you think are like the main qualities? Um, you see, in Oscar, that you think contributed to his success uh, compared to his peers.
7: It is generally true. The one here's a great thing about adversity: it generates grit and toughness among at least many of the people who face it. Right? If you face it with the right spirit and attitude, um, and so that is true not only of Oscar but of a lot of his peers in the in the uh, Negro leagues of this time period the first half of the 20th century toughness grit uh perseverance endurance those are the traits that really stand out oscar was also just supremely confident um that certainly helped wouldn't back down from anybody very uh very like hyper competitive uh if you read the book and if you read stories online you know that he got into um quite a few altercations in his career he was hyper competitive on the field got into fights now, fighting was more common at the time in both the uh, white major leagues and the black major leagues. Um, it just was; it was more common just in American life. Like people just got in fights more in the first half of the 20th century, you know, at bars, on the streets, wherever. And that was true on the baseball field as well, between players, players and umpires, players and fans. It makes for great stories. <laughs> but Oscar got into more of his share, more than his share of those because of his. He was so hyper competitive. Uh, but the other thing that really helped him is. All those traits were combined with he was very charming, charismatic, well-loved by the others in the game. So he always got – he he had people who were his patrons who gave him opportunities to move to uh, better clubs. There's a lot of player movement in the Negro Leagues. to become a manager at a very young age, 27 years old, player-manager. And and then uh, managed many of the years after that until he died in 1954. So – And the last thing I'll say is he was remarked upon as super intelligent. So he only had an eighth grade education, uh, joined the uh, military, the army soon thereafter, lied his way in at the age of 15, I believe. Um, But he was very, very smart. In fact, for instance, he started playing baseball in um, uh, Cuba at a young age and taught himself Spanish. And in his own hand, you see him translating Spanish newspaper articles into English in his scrapbook that he kept. Uh, And Just people remark about how intelligent he was. So that's a pretty good mix of traits. Uh, Intelligent, charming, really gritty and tough and hyper-competitive. That will take you far, and it did for him for sure.
5: Hofstra's morning wake-up call on WRHU. You're listening to Joe Morial. I'm speaking with author Jeremy Beer on Negro League ballplayer Oscar Charleston, the subject of his latest biography. Do you, like, what challenges did you face along the way piecing together? I know Oscar's long journey through, like, a dozen or so teams. And would you have any advice for people, like, just trying to do independent research, like, on, you know, underreported topics? Good question.
7: Well, the first thing you have to make sure you never, you cannot trust the secondary sources. If you're trying to do something like this, uh, you have, have to go back to the primary sources uh, which would be the newspapers of the time, uh, interviews that have been conducted with people who played at the time, uh, things like that, uh, or accounts, you know, columns that were written at the time and so forth. Um, if you just trust secondary sources, for instance, if I had done that, I would have had a, an entirely different picture of Oscar, whose story got really mangled, uh, after he died and he was turned into sort of like a monster, kind sort of a, a, uh, borderline psychopath and so forth. None of that's true at all. Um, So you can't trust the secondary sources but how do you get into the primary sources um one of the great things about the digital revolution is that most newspapers have been digitized most sources generally periodicals have been digitized and are searchable and that's what made this entire thing possible to be able to search uh, for oscar charleston's name and and associated sort of uh, concepts and keywords across Hundreds, thousands of sources at once made it possible. Uh, And that's where a lot of this history is captured, of course, was in the black newspapers of the day, the Pittsburgh Courier and Chicago Defender and things like that. Um, So it's not as hard as you might think, actually, with a couple of, you know, reasonably priced subscriptions. You can start to piece and a lot of some time you can start to piece together someone's uh, life. And then I also, of course, try to talk to people who are still alive in New Oscar. There are not many of them left. Um and that was and then very fortunately his scrapbook and photo album, his personal scrapbook and photo album had been acquired and, and given to the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City and I was able to to go through those items and that really gave a window into how he thought about himself, what he cared about, and so forth.
5: You think just like in general, the uh a lot of the Negro League history has been lost you know, from the underreporting or in yeah. some cases like like Oscar. Um, like some someone's reputation can change um, after they're dead, like into almost like a uh, yeah. mythological figure. Like someone like Satchel Page too has so many um, like stories you can never really right. tell if they're true.
7: Right. Well, yes, the answer is yes, but it's not entirely unretrievable or irretrievable. At least not all of it. Maybe some has been lost. There's some box scores are never going to get back. A lot of average fans went out voluntarily and scoured these newspapers. I'm talking about. And found old box scores or at least old game accounts through which we could um, recreate statistics. And eventually, the statistics we have for the Negro Leagues became pretty reliable. We think what we have fifty to sixty to seventy percent somewhere in there, at least of the major games played between Negro Leagues teams in the core Negro Leagues period. So um, that's one example. Average fans made a difference. People wouldn't have heard of Oscar Charleston today, or a lot of other. Uh, uh, Negro leagues players. If if that hadn't been done, what shocks me is that there aren't more biographies of Negro leagues players. So to your point, there's a lot of mythology, and sometimes I think we we prefer to kind of keep people in mythological status rather than take them seriously as historical figures. More of that needs to be done. Uh, there are you know there are four biographies of of every white Hall of Fame player for every one there is for a black Hall. Ho- in fact, I'm understating that. I'm sure it's more than four. Um, this my book I think it was the first or one of the first two full length biographies, uh kind of a you know, big serious biographies of, of a Negro Leagues player who played their entire league, careers in the Negro League. So that doesn't count like Ernie Banks and Hank Aaron and guys like that, Jackie Robinson. Um and that's just stunning to me. There are a lot of, there's a lot more work that could be done. You want to undertake a biography of a Negro Leagues player, man, go get it. There's plenty and there's enough material out there to do it. Just take some time. Uh I would it really am hopeful that we can rescue many of these guys, and in some cases women, from the mist of uh, mythology and just pressing them into service for whatever, or, you know, uh, cause or idea we have for them, and, and treat them seriously as rounded,
5: real, flesh and blood historical figures. I'm Joe Morial for Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call on WRHU. I'm with Jeremy Beer speaking about his latest biography, Oscar Charleston, the life and legend of gr- baseball's greatest forgotten player. And I know you're a big baseball fan, obviously, but is, so, is there something about Oscar um, just like having been almost forgotten that that kind of draws you towards uh, wanting yeah. to cover it, like uncovering the the whole truth? Completely.
7: I'm drawn to all those sides of figures generally outside, within baseball and outside baseball. I love um, recovering the stories of people who have been unjustly neglected. Uh, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of those people out there, not just in baseball or in sports, although there are plenty in those areas. But, um, and it doesn't always have to do with race. Obviously, this, this story definitely does. But in literature, history, science, you name it, there are lots of unjustly neglected figures. History is a very unjust judge. <laughs> uh always keep that in mind uh and people you know we kind of use history for our own purposes so uh there is an alternative history out there uh for almost everything waiting to be discovered
5: and uh, are you currently working on um any any other books on like a, another type of
7: yeah no not a baseball book i have a biography coming out in september uh about a uh another unjustly neglected figure Come, could not be more different the franciscan uh, priest, missionary, and explorer named Francisco Garces, who was in the Southwest, American Southwest in the late 1700s, who was sort of a one man, Lewis and Clark of the American Southwest, one of America's greatest explorers, a very attractive and admirable figure in a lot of ways. So uh, that biography is coming out in September from Oklahoma University Press.
5: One more question about the Negro League. During your research, did you find any times where uh, you could see like a long-term impact that these players had on the game of baseball.
7: Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, kind of a, a minor thing that comes to mind, but like every, most baseball fans will be familiar and many other people too, with a very famous catch that Willie Mays made, uh, gosh, was in the 48 world series, which is over his head. He's running straight back towards the center field wall. And he makes a basket catch over his head. Right. It's just it's extraordinary. That was something that he learned from guys like Oscar Charleston and other center fielders in the negro leagues that was they played a very shallow outfield and that might be one sort of tangible but very minor sort of impact on the game um play it was played with a lot of intensity uh in the negro leagues maybe even more intensity than in the um white majors and that could be another um impact that comes to mind It's a good question i I haven't thought as deeply about that. Um, as I should, Joe. I'll I'll get back to you on that question. Mm-hmm. I think the way to look at that is that they were there wasn't some big separation. They were they're were playing against each other, they knew each other, sometimes they were friends. Um it, so the it, it wasn't like there was some big like gulf between these two groups of guys. But what, what happened in one, you know, league when they see a, a strategy take place there would often be taken up by the other. But actually it's very common to find a a lot of respect and friendship oscar was friends with jimmy fox for example hall of fame player played for the red sox um ted williams had a lot of respect for uh black players uh and there's and this goes way back into the teens uh, and earlier um yeah really um there's a lot of cross-racial uh friendship and a lot of cross-racial admiration and respect and it was sort of nice to see and that's part of how uh Integration ended up happening. Obviously, World War II had a lot to do with it. But also part of it was that there were white players speaking out, not as many as there should have, no doubt about it, saying no, I'm sure
5: privately and even publicly, like, hey, these guys can play. What are we doing? Hofstra's morning wake-up call with Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Before I let you go, Jeremy, do you have any social media or uh, do you have a website that our listeners can find you on?
7: I'm horrible uh, at social media. No, you can find me on <laughs> LinkedIn is the only stinking thing you can find me on. Uh, I, I stay saying that way, but OscarCharleston.com, I have a lot of stuff posted about Oscar up there, and then you can just um, find a book anywhere online you prefer to buy your books.
2: And we're back here, 52 past the hour, Danny, Antonio, Yao, Joe, and Jack, Boys Club here on this Wednesday morning wake-up call. Very long but very solid interview by our very own Joe Montreal. Joe, I really was taken by the ending of it when he talked about the cross-racial friendships that allowed integration to happen in baseball. And I think it goes without saying, but sports is that type of field where it's literally no pun intended, an equal playing field. If you can play, you can play. And I think that's what he just said on the interview.
5: Yeah, yeah. Special thanks to uh, Jeremy for uh, speaking with me. But... um. Yeah, I, I thought that was one of, I agree, that that was one of my most interesting um, takeaways from the book, is the, the, uh, the, inter- the, the games between the black players and the white players in, throughout the 20s and 30s, you know, they were a lot more pre- prevalent than a lot of, uh, a lot of st- stories are, are you hear are, say, so it, it, it um, the Negro Leagues kind of come with, like, a mythology around them, uh, pe- people, people. Their legacies were lost, and and it, it's someone like Jeremy is now uncovering untold stories. So he was the first person to, to to write a biography on Oscar Charleston, who many baseball historians consider to be a top ten. I've seen him ranked in the top ten players of all time, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And he didn't even have a uh, a biography until 2019. Wow, wow. Yeah, I know you're our
4: sports guy. Yeah, I I can only imagine what could have been if Oscar Charleston was able to match up against players like Babe Ruth and all of the other white players that came up that was dominating MLB when the Negro Leagues were in its prominence and in its prime. It's just, it's just, it's just, I don't want to say sad, but just the what if of it is always, it's always a hard conversation to have because of course now the Negro Leagues are being recognized by, or the Negro League is being recognized by MLB and its contemporaries, but just the fact that they never got to match up against the greats that we see in MLB, I think sometimes it's an indictment on the legacy of players like Ruth and Gehrig and Ty Cobb, but listen, uh, it's only it's, it's just a what if conversation for me that's that's the biggest yeah. that's the biggest thing to take away because the more you hear these stories the more you hear about the legacy of people like charleston the more you hear about how great they were the more you think about wow if they were an mlb if they actually got to match up with their white contemporaries man oh man what the history books would have been different oh yeah that's, that's it, what i could only assume
5: and it, it, it's it says a lot that um, some of the, the biggest names from from baseball of that time considered Charleston to be, um, you know, as good or 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 better than every other player at the time. So people like Honus Wagner, who never played in integrated baseball, he said he said that um, Charleston. There was no better player he witnessed than, than Charleston, and um, it, it is a shame that we don't get to see like you know what it could have been. But there are uh, limited numbers of of. Games between uh, white white major leaguers and the um, professional Negro leagues, and Charleston actually hit uh, through a three fifty five batting average yeah. uh, versus versus the white major leaguers.
4: And I think the great thing about the Negro leagues was it was more than just baseball. If you think back to the early twentieth century, you had you had places like New York City, you know Harlem, of course there, you know Chicago, Bronzeville, and then had Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma they basically, those black communities said, okay, we can't integrate we've been forced to separate so let's start businesses on our own and find out how to survive economically so that's when the negro leagues came in and what the negro league games did it gave a black community the opportunity to see baseball in a way they haven't been seen before but even the type of money that circulated with these games you fed that back into these communities the black communities uh, help these businesses and these communities flourish and survive so we talk about the baseball a lot and rightfully so is the negro leagues the Baseball's the main storyline of it, but just what it did for black communities in general, not only giving them a sense of a sport that they haven't seen before, but the business aspect of it, that's another great thing that, of course, our Oscar Charleston contributed to highly.
2: Certainly a interesting historical trend and through line in American history. Baseball, of course, and not only just an American sport, an American institution. Thank you so much for bringing the interview to us, Joe. Before we end our first hour, we're going to have one more story we're going to cover. Speaking of money, we're going to move the phosphorus story to the second hour, but we do have a package from our very own Isaac Brendel, focusing on one of the major things that happened earlier this week, the acquisition of Capital One by Discovery. I know we're going from baseball to credit cards, but this is important. It could shake up the credit card industry. When this is over, we'll see you on the second hour. This is the Hofstra Money Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. Hey, don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call, only on 88.7 FM WRHU.
8: In a $35.3 billion deal, Capital One is acquiring Discover Financial Services. The goal of the deal is to compete with giants such as American Express, Visa, and MasterCard. Out of the four major American credit card companies, Discover enters the merger as the smallest. Capital One, on the other hand, is one of America's largest banks, holding $479 billion in assets. As part of their acquisition, Capital One is set to pay Discover shareholders a 26% premium based on its closing stock price on friday when the market closed on friday discover was valued at around 28 billion dollars with capital one being valued around 58 billion dollars making an appearance on cnbc baird senior analyst david george said that he believes that this deal will succeed
2: from our standpoint this is a large deal Uh, But the
8: integration risk compared to, and we've been doing this a long time, compared to bank deals is a lot less, because in a transactional product like credit card, you don't have to worry about
2: retaining bankers, the the relationship piece is not nearly as meaningful. So uh, despite this as being a $35 billion deal, a very large one, the largest in many years, the integration risk here we think is a lot less, relative to uh, some of the larger bank deals we've seen.
8: Tuesday saw Discover stock rise over 11%, with Capital One falling over 4%. Shares of Discover saw a slump in January after the company announced that its fourth quarter profit dropped. At the moment, it is unclear if Discover card holders will be receiving a new card, but the merger will give Capital One more flexibility to create their own network for some of their cards. The company has previously relied on Visa and MasterCard for those services. According to reports, they will continue to use Visa and MasterCard in some capacity. The deal is still pending regulatory approval, which will not be granted until late 2024 to early 2025. If it is approved, it will form the sixth largest bank in America. Reporting for Newsline, I'm Isaac Brendel, WRHU.
7: Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio, WRHU, Hempstead. Hempstead. You discovered. You discovered. A cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of
3: Communication,
0: WRHU.
2: Experiencing some technical difficulties here, but we're back for the second hour of the Hofshire Morning Wake Up Call, where we are talking Long Island life, national news and international issues. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Antonio Schoenhart, Yao Su, Joe Morial, and Jack Ferretti. We love Tech Difficulties, fellas, but the show must go on, <laughs> we as they on. say. We roll on. How are we doing? We had a really action-packed first hour.
4: Yeah, I mean, usually, usually with the morning show, I've noticed, just with some of the other crews I've been on, the 8 o'clock hours when things really start to ramp up, but that last hour... We really got into a lot of discussions that really could have took the entire hour, or at least half of it. So, I mean, good on you guys. The audience doesn't really know the system. We all choose the stories we wanted to run down. Danny as our head man, head man kind of is, is guiding the ship and making sure that everything's in order, but today it feels like everybody was on point with the stories they 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 chose. So it was a good discussion. We, we,
2: are, all, we are all firing on all cylinders. Jack, how are we feeling? Because we're gonna open with you. I'm doing good today. Thank you very much. So, if you like, I can get it right. well. Well, we're going to do the weather and the news, and then you're on tap. So, again, oh, as we were talking about baseball last hour, you're on the on deck circle. Of course. Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. Yes, sir.
3: <laughs> I was about to say. So,
2: you know how it's called in the hole, right? Is that the expression? Yeah. Okay. So, in the hole. when we were playing Little League as kids, we never liked that. So, we said we were on the hill. Get it? It's like a
5: complete opposite. <laughs> so, I
4: would have done Hey, this was Danny's a, this was a championship
2: Little League team. This was a championship Little League team. We, we went undefeated, oh, and we won in the championship by nine runs, so we're allowed to say on the hill.
4: Listen, man, death, taxes, and Danny's humor. I mean, the guarantee's on life. What's up, Doc? All right. Uh, <laughs>
2: all right, weather from Joe. We have no weather bed, unfortunately, but I know you'll do a fantastic job regardless.
5: Yeah, so for today's uh, weather forecast, it's currently 27 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. Up in the sky, it's still cloudy. The rest of the day should remain cloudy, but it doesn't look like rain's coming. Uh, there's an expected high of 41 degrees during the day, and tonight it'll be a low of 22. Thank you so much.
2: And the local news, the last
5: thing before we get into the hour
0: proper, that'll be courtesy of Antonio and... Whenever you're ready, my friends. Oh, yes. Let's get right into it. With our top headline for today, at least in the local aspect of things, a plane had to make an emergency landing on the Southern State Parkway yesterday. The single-engine aircraft carrying two people on board made the landing at around 11.45 in the morning. All of the passengers on board were brought to the hospital for an evaluation, and there is no status on that currently, although authorities do expect everyone involved in the incident to be Okay. The entire situation is also still under investigation by the FAA. The Developers behind a 726-unit apartment complex repurposing buildings from the Shuttered Case Central Islip Psychiatric Center are prioritizing first responders, with a program that provides a 10% monthly discount on rent during their lease. Their hope is that the discounts at Belmont at Eastview, combined with rental housing, will help keep, quote, the workforce here on Long Island, said Russell Moore, the vice president of development for Steel Equities, a project developer in Bethpage. Now, most tenants at the luxury depart- development so far are between 25 and 45 years of age. Of the 175 apartments at the complex leased since this summer, around 60% have been rented to firefighters, police officers, medical personnel and veterans. Suffolk Pol- Suffolk police are investigating what the department called quote the unauthorized release of body camera footage show- showing officers fatally shooting a knife-wielding man who stabbed an officer in Bayshore on Saturday. The video was posted on media websites and social media on Saturday, several hours after Tequel Woodson, 33 years old, charged at an officer who fell in the snow on the front lawn of a home in udall Road and stabbed him several times. Quote, the department is not releasing the body-worn camera video at this time, a spokeswoman for the department said in an email on Monday. Following with that, quote, the Internal Affairs Bureau is investigating the unauthorized release of the body worn camera footage. Finally, today with our last local headline, the U.S., the only U.S. president, I should say, to call Long Island his permanent home has once again secured his place in the top tier. According to a new poll that ranks all 45 presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, whose Sagamore Hill home in Oyster Bay is a national historic site, came in at number four. In the Presidential Greatness Project expert survey released earlier this week, two prior polls were released in 2015 and 2018, in which he was also in the top five in both. And with that, that concludes our local headlines.
4: Who you're- needs a bed? Who needs music? Under you're, F- you're also forgetting. I'm just freestyling right one now. One of
2: New York's very own, Donald Trump, he came in last in that survey. Oh yeah, he Dead did last, he- even even among conservative historians. Listen. Uh, so you can't win them all. You can have great New York Republicans like Roosevelt and ones who are not as well received like Trump.
0: If you were tuned in in the first hour, you know that Trump's making some some iffy decisions. And so they, they, it's it's, it's interesting, showing itself interesting.
2: It, associating with some interesting people. But okay, so <laughs> it looks like it looks like while you were talking Antonio, which is great by the way, I was able to get our system back. So I'm going to play a test sound to see if we got it. You guys ready? Yes, Yes, sir,
5: come on,
4: man (laughs) (laughs) That was the exact reaction when Zetta crashed. Come on,
2: man, that was literally me. I'm like, oh, Zetta froze That's just beautiful. Come on, man All right, well, we the good thing is we needed it because we have some fantastic interviews coming up in this hour So we can't just Regurgitate what our guests said. We actually need their their voices so we can move forward with our first story And it's gonna be from Jack talking about some entertainment news, is that correct?
3: That is correct, man. All
2: right, so whenever you're ready, let's let's go for it. Let's go.
3: All right. So, yesterday, all the Beatles seemed so far away, but that doesn't look as though it's here to stay, as Sony Pictures has unveiled an ambitious project that will bring the legendary story of the Beatles to the big screen like never before. Directed by, by the acclaimed filmmaker, Mendes, Sam Mendes, the endeavor will consist of not just one, but four biopics, each focusing on one of the fab four. Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. Breaking new ground, the Beatles have granted full life and music rights to the project, marking a significant departure from their traditionally guarded stance on such endeavors. With Sony targeting a 2027 release all, for all four films, they set to offer an innovative cinematic experience, potentially intersecting and coexisting in the theaters. Son, Sam Mendes honors and expressed his, uh, this by helming the project, and he aims to redefine the movie going experience through the iconic band's narrative and these films will dive deeper into the personal perspectives of each of the beatles and the announcement comes a resurgence of interest in musical biopics with recent hits like bohemian rhapsody and the very recent <clears throat> rocket man setting a stage for groundbreaking theatrical experiences it's, so so oh, please, that's very re- no please. very cool yeah. <sighs>
2: So Sean Mendez is not directing?
3: <laughs> Sam Mendez, my mistake. You had
2: me at Sean. You had me at Sean. You had man. me. I was hooked I thought going, the same thing when I, I saw it. it. I was I like I go,
3: oh my boy Sean? When I saw that I was like, Oh my God.
2: You had me at Sean. But I guess Sam will have to do. There has been a lot of musical movies lately. Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man. You didn't even mention Elvis. Bob Marley's just came Bob out. Bob Marley's weekend. just came out. I heard what? that's getting
0: great reviews. Oh, oh, I, I saw it. it. It's it's awesome. Project- right. Movie yeah. critic into okay movie critic What's and, that? like double box office projection. yeah of it. no it, it was it was a, it's an awesome movie um even even the family of Bob Marley all like you know they had a they had a good amount of say into all the movie you know everything that went on in the movie Bob Marley, Marley's brother um, and his son were actually also asked to star as Bob Marley but they uh, specifically and purposefully said no because they even though they are his blood they didn't feel as if they could embody the role of, um, you know, the the singer and, and songwriter that we all, you know, have come to love. Yeah, so one comment before we
2: let Yao say his piece. The issue, the thing is, these movies that following one person, one artist, the Beatles film that you're talking about from Not Shawn Mendes is going to have four <laughs> main characters. And then that fifth guy that everyone's like, oh, remember when there was a fifth Beatle? Like, that's like one of the things that everyone says. So... have four people you have to follow i don't i I, i'm curious to see how that influences the film when you have four different stories four musicians who really stand as some of the best ever uh least in their genre so that's what i think will be interesting to follow how does this movie explore all four of them yeah what were you going to say
4: yeah film is getting a bit too easy nowadays now obviously the filmmaking process is hard but the idea is getting a bit too easy. Of course you're gonna do a film on the Beatles, the Michael Jackson biopic is coming out soon, so I feel like it's getting a bit too easy to figure out what you, what we want these movies to be about, and we're not coming up with original ideas. That being said, if you're doing four different biopics, it would be wise to have the same scene in all four, and then what happens after follows the perspective. Yeah. So when the four guys are in the same room, let's say you know the, the first time they got their record deal, Right, the first time they were announced that they were going to be a group, the following scenes can follow each of the each of the actors' point of view or each of the members of the band's point of view after group moments throughout their career. I feel like that's how you make the best use of this movie. But that being said, with all these biopics that are coming out with artists, I think this movie, if done right, could reveal some things that most people wouldn't know. I think back to the Elvis movie. What the Elvis movie did. It contradicted what we knew about Elvis yeah. Presley. What the movie got right is, of course, Elvis grew up in a predominantly black community, a poor community that was predominantly black. However, When you think back to what Presley actually was, you have people who say that Presley wasn't as great as he was, that he took a lot of his music from African-American artists and black rock originators, and you had people speaking out against him. It was all the way in 1994, I think Ray Charles sat down with an interview with Bob Costas, and he pointed out that if Elvis was so great and outstanding, then why did he steal his music from other black artists, right? Singers like Nat King Cole and other artists that Presley was inspired by, those are the people that deserved praise, as opposed to Elvis Presley himself. So mm-hmm. I think about stories like that. I think about the fact that Presley grew up, the movie showed that Presley grew up about around predominantly black artists and how that influenced his music. Of course, Presley became this world-famous music artist that we all know and love. So can we see something like this with the Beatles, where, of course, we know that the Beatles are one of the greatest bands of all time, highest selling bands of all time. But is there something there, something deeper there that people don't know that will be revealed in these films? That's what I'm interested to see.
2: Only the medium of film. Can really explore yes. maybe not even a documentary, but a, a, a major motion picture. And mm-hmm. also, thing with Elvis, there was the whole Priscilla film that came out too. So that's you basically got the main Elvis biopic, and then you got the the, the DLC, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah. But here's the thing with these musical things, these musical biopics. How long are these gonna go when we're we're in our 50s is there gonna be a drake biopic guys oh yeah are we ready for that
4: what is it gonna be called drizzy is that gonna be the movie but is that interesting though no it's Uh, not yeah i mean i don't see it could be then drake drake is one of the best hip-hop artists ever but i don't see his what is his place in history the memes well you see well, maybe for is, us the kind what of else, guy because well, here's the thing
0: so we focusing on a name that can give
4: maybe them seats, maybe for
0: us right now looking at it at face value we don't necessarily see the history but like these artists are going to be like to our kids what you know michael jackson or, or elvis presley was even to our you know parents or to us we're like they're not from our generation they're from before but they, they, they leaked into our generation I mean everybody has to know who Michael Jackson is even whether or not you listen to his music you, you also do know who Elvis Presley is whether or not you listen to their music you got to know songs like hey Jude here comes the sun you know let it be uh, yellow submarine you know I want to hold your hand like you know those those, those Beatles songs but those one are way innovative.
2: Or Musical numbers, and they were exactly, a phenomenal. Yeah. And the story, Plus, I see, yeah, I, see, I do get that. They didn't it. exist with social yeah. media when everyone's perception of you is clouded by a multifaceted exactly. media ecosystem. So how can we even make a film about? Think about. Okay, there's going to be a Cardi B biopic one day. I can tell there you probably that probably will be. But, but what? What but are we going to learn that we about? don't know now? True. Exactly. That's why the
4: Michael Jackson biopic is so important. That's true. Because to me, Very he's true. the greatest entertainer ever. A biopic yeah. on Jay-Z would be great too, because although we're in a social media era now where we see a lot more Jay-Z, this is a guy that when he grew up in New York at eleven years old, it was in the nineteen eighties in the middle of the crack cocaine era. And he grew out of that. He sold drugs, he's admitted that, and now he became this big music artist. So that story is something that needs to be told. As far as Drake, excuse me if I'm being ignorant, but I don't see things throughout his career that can be seen as that could be seen as culturally Game changing. Yeah, those DeGrassi days. The DeGrassi. Degrassi had a, like <laughs> 20 no, seasons. But, but even, <laughs> other artists,
2: like, like, even artists who are more like Dua Lipa, right, or I don't even know, uh the weekend. These these artists today, do they? And these are our people, guys. We grew up great with great artists. artists too. Yes, They're great. We love yes. them all. But do they compare to the historical stature <clears throat> of, of the Beatles or Bob Marley or mm, Michael Jackson? No,
3: no. Because yeah, that time, the, there was less to go off of.
4: Because
2: they. We're trendsetters. It is so
4: much easier to be an artist now because back then, artists now are sampling songs from back then. Michael Jackson is being sampled. Jay-Z's early music is being sampled. So when you think about the 1990s or even before then, it was much harder to make music because you really had to earn your keep right? We're not. It's not the era of today where when you turn on a drill beat, it's some sample of songs from the 2010s, 2000s, and even before then. It's way easier in the streaming era now, as opposed when you really had to be walking out in the road way back when and selling your CDs, whether that's cold, through snow, sleet, ice, burning temperatures, whatever it may be. Those are the stories that need to be told. And to Danny's point, Dua Lipa's great, The Weeknd's great. There are culturally relevant in our world today. But again... I don't see the historical significance with them despite how popular they are yeah and, mm-hmm. and
5: now to that point now it's a lot easier for artists to find like their niche audience so people people like uh, Michael Jackson back in the day like they just dominated MTV there's there's less yeah, uh, mediums yeah. So. they don't penetrate bring back
0: MTV music they, they don't
2: penetrate the zeitgeist like okay yeah. so we have the Beatles right that's the movie that's coming out imagine if in 30 years they make a biopic on Big Time Rush I love Big Time Rush. I watched the TV show, I went yep. to the concerts. I'm a I'm a BTR fanboy. But would I ever in my in my entire life say, "Oh yeah, BTR is a better band or uh, is on the same level as the Beatles." Absolutely not. No, you
3: don't need to see that story. You so, basically saw it all. But
2: I like BTR more than the Beatles. But I think that's just uh, my opinion, but I but here's the thing. People uh, people can't separate their opinions from the historical record. That's the problem.
4: That's the problem. That's if B T and also if BTR gets a biopic what are, like, <laughs> know,
0: what are we doing? I know. What are we doing? I'm yeah. saying that as a fan. You know, I fear. Oh, I'm sorry to cut no, you no, off, no, no, yeah, no, no, please, but please. I fear because going down this this road of, of like you like what are we doing? I fear the reality of a future where we get biopics on streamers.
4: We probably will. Kai <laughs> Sinatra. Sinatra. <Yes. laughs> like you know, Like you see what? Aiden like, Ross. I mean, I mean, we the poster will. is going to be oh, Brown man. jumping over him. But oh my gosh! Oh um, my god! I do think
5: these. Uh, a lot of these biopics on musicians, though, I tend to be getting like duller <laughs> with audiences as more and more are coming out. And and it, I I think like a new approach like this with four different perspectives, possibly of similar events taking place. Is kind of what maybe has to happen
3: which, to keep audiences engaged which to me is like I've, that's what i found the most interesting about it the fact that they're doing four of these and they're releasing all four their plan is at least right now i guess they're all they're planning to release all four in 2027 like as a director like as that a is crew, a money
4: grab at its finest it's about how it, long it takes to do a press tour yeah exactly it certainly right? also, think about the, yeah
3: think it's, about the endeavor oh, for the director pulling a hunger games and a
4: diversion and it's a Harry crazy. Potter, at least the
2: final one in two parts it's
3: crazy like, this yeah is it's just a crazy be... money grab it's like are they is it, are they setting up like an actual like universe like is it gonna all culminate in <laughs> the like BCU, the beatles coming the, together the beatles, <laughs> is uh, the like it's this phase one
5: the bcu people are open to to movies like marvel just did amazing with all these movies that interconnect. So, so right, like, well, we, John I mean, Lennon's a
2: superhero. It's been <laughs> what, five years since the last great Marvel movie. Yeah, being Main out, For being good. honest, so yeah. I
4: mean, avoid really,
2: maybe. For, right, uh... but I don't want <laughs> musical adaptations of artists' lives to go the way. That's of the that's the,
4: that's the big conversation yeah. here. Is the Beatles warrant it? We're not yeah. in disagreement about that. But the artists we see as the most popular now in they, 2024, if we're talking 10, 20 years from now. And they are getting biopics. Yeah. Then that's a much conversation to have because a lot of their life is being played out right in front. Yeah, of like us. Young Thug. Exactly. Is he going to be? Is he going to be a felon? Is that, I mean I can't imagine him getting a biopic, but he probably will. He definitely YSL, will. There's very few. And considering like haven't exactly, warranted exactly. it, they're not
3: like as tr- like not like tragic fallings. They're not like a story of redemption for most artists nowadays.
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah. every everybody comes up from something, but I don't I don't really think respectfully we're that we're coming enough. up in a different
3: world. We're coming up in a
2: different exactly. world. exactly yeah. exactly. All right, we're gonna end it there. But the animated, lively conversation. Thank you so much for starting it, Jack. And we're gonna stay on this musical beat because we have. An interview from Antonio, who's also the head producer of the Hip Hop Basement right here on 88.7. He had the chance to sit down with Official X, who is one of Hofstra's very own stars that opened for Ski Mask, the Slump God. He, before, they talked about his journey through music. And uh, nothing else to say there. Let's take a listen. You're listening to the Hofstra When You Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM WRHU.
1: The frequency, 88.7 FM. The call letters, WRHU. The website, WRHU.org. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. national National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students.
0: Hey, what's going on? It's Antonio Schoenhart, but in the world of hip-hop basement, y'all know me as DJ Monty. And in studio today, I have a very special and very important person. His name's Xavier Bell, but y'all might know him as The Official X. X, how we doing? I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. I we, we had a little bit, took us a while to get in studio, yeah. but now we're finally in here uh, and we're ready to start talking. And I want to get right into it. I know before you told me you were from Baltimore. Yes. Sir. So I got to ask you, what was it like growing up in Baltimore?
6: Um, Growing up in Baltimore, for real. I mean, it was good. It was a good experience for me. Like, that's where, like, all my family is from. So, like, I had a lot of, like, support growing up. Um, Baltimore is like really you know popular for the arts believe it or not it's just so much talent in Baltimore and um, I feel like sometimes that can be overlooked by how the media portrays Baltimore for real so like growing up there um, I attended Baltimore School for the Arts Um, for those of you who know like what that is well like you know what Baltimore School for the Arts is um, I study acting there and that's really where I got into my music like growing up back home in Baltimore yeah and so uh while you're talking about that how did growing up in baltimore
0: shape the way you viewed music or the way you currently view music
6: i mean the place itself really didn't like shape how i viewed music per se i mean it's just it's just like really where like i like I got my start like it's you know they say home is where the heart is so like when I be back home that's where like a lot of my inspiration come from for real because like that's where like I grew up like I'm at home and like that's where like my creativity really be flowing so yeah so how what what would you say have you brought any of that here to Hofstra yeah I would definitely say that I definitely like brought that to Hofstra definitely like being as though like that's where I started and then I brought it here okay and so
0: has music just always been something just like instilled, ingrained in your life? Well, not particularly. I know you you said you've, you've always been around with performing arts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But creating music, has that always been something that interests you? Or is that something that you just
6: came across in recent years? No, it's actually been something that's like been a, like been a part of my whole life for real. Like um since I was like five years old, I would like come up with like songs in the shower. Like I would like write little songs in like my notebook. Um, I remember doing like recess time at class. I would like, the kids would be like playing on like the playground or like if it was indoor recess, they would be like playing with like other stuff. Me, I was over there like writing songs. So it just came to me. I feel like I was just born with it. Like it was just something that I was blessed with. And no matter how many times or how many breaks that I've taken from music or how many times I've stopped doing music, it's always been something that I come right back to. And I just feel like it's just something that's just like ingrained like we just locked in together me and music <laughs> so how would you say
0: in so far in the last few years especially here at Hofstra how has the trajectory of your music career altered or how has like give me the story of your music career
6: how has Hofstra you know helped shape it if, if, if it has I feel like Ho- like coming to Hofstra definitely did a lot for my music career um I came here a little Nervous, which every, you know, up-and-coming artist is, because, like, you want to know, do they like my music? Are they going to rock with my music? And, like, on top of that, it's New York. Like, this is where hip-hop was birthed. And being a rapper and like, in New York, I feel like people would have been, like, very critical. But, like, coming here, I was a little shy. But then, in the back of my mind, I had, like, a mission. I'm, like, you know, I'm coming here for my music to, like, kick it off and, like, jumpstart it. So um, a friend of mine, my freshman year, she was uh, the, the president of the NAACP here. And they were having like their first annual cookout. And she's like, um, um, and I asked her like, yo, how do people perform? Cause they have fall fests. And she's like, oh, you just ask around. And, and she's like, you're trying to perform. So I performed there, boom. And, I, and like, I'll never forget it was October 8th um, of 2021. And like, since then, it's like the ball just been rolling and rolling. And like being here, everybody's so supportive like everybody's so supportive and like it has definitely done great things for my music like i built and made so many connections with people
0: so i like the fact that you brought up fall fest in 2021 because as as we know music fest 2023 <laughs> you got to open for some pretty so for some pretty big names ski mask slump god um cupcake Fem Dot. i gotta ask you what was that like how was that experience when you found out that you would be opening for those artists what was your reaction
6: man when i say like i was so excited i'm not gonna lie like they did the announcement in the student center i was like <gasps> yo like they even posted it on the like Hobster university official account i'm not gonna lie i was a little embarrassed but like that's a moment to like jump for joy like these are people back in middle school that like i heard of and like that like i listened to so like to be able to, you know, years later perf- like Open up for these people I feel like that was really a full circle moment for me When I first won um, Battle for Music Fest With the nice guys and everything We didn't know who we were performing for It was like a little over a month later That we found out that Oh, we was opening for Cupcake, Ski Mask And um, FemDOT So I'm just like oh, Like that added more excitement to like performing for the music would you say up until right now is that is that is that the
0: highlight or is there are there other things that that you would say you know in experience wise
6: I feel like right now I mean there have been other things but as far as performances that's like up here like that's like top performance for me like that's like a performance that I can go back and watch or like think about and just like feel so much joy and like not critique myself as much because i know how much like work like my team and i put into it so i feel like that's really a highlight like that was really a moment just where like i think back to it and i just feel nothing but gratitude i mean you gotta let you gotta look
0: at the fact that is an opportunity that is very it's like almost feel like it's once in a lifetime not too many people you know have the chance to have that opportunity but you were there you did it and i gotta ask obviously hofstra gave you that um opportunity but has Hofstra opened the door to anything else in your time here or has it been more of like you working your side hustle you getting your own like you know uh brand out there you making your own image or has has Hofstra you
6: know paved the way for that in a little bit it definitely like paved the way like it it gave me a platform okay but like outside of Hofstra I have made connections with like many other people and like um, platforms and radio stations, like last year, two of my songs, um, "Stomp" and "Slick," which was released a year prior, got put on Grammy U uh, playlist In feb- last February, it was Grammy U's February playlist. My song "Slick," and then I think it was September. Yeah, it was September. My song "Stomp" got put on the um, Grammy U September playlist. So like all of it, really like. And that connection for like Rami You or whatever, I made that here. But like outside of that through like Instagram and stuff, um, like I've, I've worked with like different articles and like blogs and publications and stuff like that. like.
0: Definitely, so yes. you're doing your own work. You're putting your
6: own time into this because this is something you want to get. You know, You, yes. you, you want to get something out of this. Obviously. Definitely, definitely, definitely. But like, I can't say that like I've done it all on my own. Like, it's been a help of like my manager Sky, and then like I've been working with um, this indie label called um, MJMG. I'm not signed, but like um, the owner of it, Miss Jackson, like she's got me like some like radio spins and like some interviews and stuff like that. So it's been like stuff outside of here.
0: So you just brought up a few of your songs, but uh, I want to talk about your your latest release locked in right talk to me a little bit about about the process of making that song what went into that so it's so funny
6: this was last august um i had like i just had like a couple little bars for the song until um like i had went to the studio my homeboy carmelo shout out to him he made the beat um and i had went to his dorm and like i had gave him a flow and then i'm like yeah yo i'm trying to do something different and then he's like well you know the flow kind of the same like you guys switched up so i'm like all right you know you take control you make the beat i'm just getting where i fit in with the beat so he's making the beat for locked in and i'm sitting over there and i'm writing and i'm writing and i'm writing and i'm writing As like stuff just came to my mind like i was like mentally locked in like all of the stuff that was coming to my mind I was just, like, just typing away on, like, my phone, writing it. And then he gets to the end of the beat, and I'm like, yo, I got to come back. Like, I'm like, I, I got to write something that's more deep for this. And he's like, no, write what you got. So I did that, and sure enough, everything flowed. Everything flowed, and I think it took me maybe, like, two hours to write that entire thing. Like, I came there with, like, a couple lines and stuff, but to write the whole thing, it took me maybe, like, two hours, I want to say. But, like, I didn't record it that day. I came back a few weeks later and, like, recorded the whole song. So, yeah. Okay.
0: Now, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. I'm Antonio Schoenhart in the hip-hop basement. I'm known as DJ Monty, and I got the one and only official X with me in studio. He was just explaining the thought process behind his newest release, locked in and now we're going to go in to a deeper question that I have wanted to ask is that the, your favorite song that you've made or what
6: would your favorite song that you made be that's a that's a tricky question lyric like like lyric we can break it down into different categories bet so lyrically I have to say locked in is one of like my favorite songs that I've ever written just because of like me I care a lot about lyrics when it comes to writing like I feel like yeah, you could have a dope beat, you know, you could be saying stuff that, like, people resonate with, yes. But then again, it's rap. I feel like rap is something where, like, you use your mind to think. Like, where's, like, metaphors, double entendres, puns, and all of that stuff. I feel like that's where the fun comes in for rap. So I do that with, like, all of my music. Like, I, I don't like to just get on the mic and just rhyme and just be like, yeah, I'm fly. I'm that guy. like, no, like, I like to actually put thought time and effort into the lyrics that i do but it was just something just so special about this night where i wrote this song so locked in would have to be number one for that like one of the songs that i've ever written um lyric like lyrically yeah that's like my favorite song i'm not gonna lie
0: how about (laughs) um i gotta ask you this when when you were performing especially because I was there I was actually doing a lot of music or a lot of the photo photography for uh WRHU okay. um at music fest what was your favorite song to perform or what is your favorite song to perform stomp
6: stomp hands down like stomp has to be my favorite song to perform and then that day it was like my it was my like favorite song to perform because like it was some people in the crowd that had knew the song and that just like warmed up my heart of I'm like man they know my music and like it's just, when I perform Stomp, it's like, it gets the crowd hype, And when I perform, I feed off of energy. So like, if the crowd going like crazy, ha that's going to like, fill me up. And then I'm going to start going like crazy. You know? So like, when, when writing
0: music, do you write to see like, oh, what type of energy can I pull from the crowd? Like, do you want to have your audience feel a certain type of emotion when listening to like some of your songs? Do you write for the emotional aspect of it? Or like, do you do you like writing just for like the playability of it, or would it be
6: like some like a little mixture of, of the two? So when I first started making music, I think I was writing more so for like the playability of it, like oh you know somebody gonna listen to this, like I, I really wasn't writing for me in that case, and then it, it wasn't until like. In the 2021, I dropped my song, like, Love and Affection, and like I'm like, yo, I'ma just start writing based off of how I feel, because that's what music is. And like in the end, I know that there is somebody out there that feel the way I feel, and that's like me, and I probably like think the things that I think. So I'm like, you know what, I'ma write it, and my music is gonna find someone, and then somebody is gonna find my music, and then that's how it's gonna go. So I used to write for the playability of things, but these like last two releases I've just been like writing and just getting in the booth and just saying you know it just is just having is. fun with it yeah 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 yeah. and like that's where some of creators best work come from is when they're just having fun and when you get everybody else out of your mind and what everybody else would think about that's when you know things start to flow better and then you really create things that is authentic like I feel like a lot of people well a lot of creators when they're first starting to create things in the beginning they create based off of what they think other people will think because of i guess fear of judgment or they don't want to be criticized so much or like they want it to be perfect enough so that they don't have to hear people's criticism and you know everybody goes through that but like me now um it's like i just was like, i'm just at the point where like you know what i want to speak how i feel like you just want to do you yeah so that's it so like that's what like all of these like releases have been So if you are just tuning in
0: you missed an awesome interview i'm antonio Schoenhart, accompanied by the one and only official x thank you so much for joining me in studio and you're listening to wrhu on 88.7 fm radio hofstra university yes sir okay so i guess if you just
2: tuned in you just missed it (laughs) awesome all right danny antonio Yao. (laughs) i gotta keep it real man and jack we have a great back half of this hour oh, on the way. Uh, first things first, the rest of that interview, you can hear that on the Friday morning wake-up call. Also on Friday will be the baseline, and I bring that up because I forgot to put this in the headlines. UConn lost last night to Creighton. Crazy. AP number shoot one. Shoot. Fell, shoot or shoot. Fell on, their home, on the Creighton's home floor. But we're going to move on to two quick stories, one of which is too hilarious not to bring up. So here's what happened in the Garden State. Eliyahu Weinstein, a New Jersey resident, was convicted. it uh, was a convicted Ponzi schemer, pardoned by Donald Trump on January 19, 2021. He had been convicted in two separate cases: a $200 million Ponzi scheme involving a fake portfolio of real estate investments. And then a second scheme in which he duped a loan investor out of almost $7 million after tricking the victim into thinking that he had an inside track on hard-to-get shares of the Facebook initial public offering. (laughs) The scheme he masterminded was crazy, but yesterday Weinstein was indicted again. By a grand jury on Tuesday, along with another 49-year-old, Araya Bromberg, the U.S. Attorney's Office of District of New Jersey, said the two were accused of starting up an elaborate investment scheme while Weinstein was on supervised release, My only piece on this is that Weinstein was one of 140 Trump pardons on his last full day in office, and I guess... I guess once you've been a Ponzi schemer, always a Ponzi schemer, right? Antonio, you have a great quote on this. We're gonna go around the horn, and then we're gonna do
0: another story. What's yeah. Quote? So, you like, so this is so coming straight from Philip Sellinger, who is the U.S. State Attorney for New Jersey. He goes, quote, Mr. Weinstein had picked up right where he left off
8: after <laughs> leaving prison, <laughs>
0: concocting a stream to solicit investments to a company called Optimus Investments Incorporated, Come on, man. <laughs> which he had operated with Mr. Bromberg Optimus and Mr. And Wittles.
4: <laughs> All right.
2: Yeah, you have a great nugget on man. this, tip.
4: So for Eli Weinstein... The man who represented Eli Weinstein as he went through this pardon process is no other than Alan Dershowitz,
2: Alan Dershowitz, who is
4: former President Trump's personal, who was former President Trump's personal lawyer. You're also forgetting the Epstein connection. Yes. That, <laughs> oh my. Go- oh my goodness. Please. You. You, you, you want to say the Epstein connection? Yeah. He was. He was very close with Jeffrey Epstein. Yes.
2: Exactly. Didn't represent him, but he was. He provided legal counsel in some cases.
4: And also, Weinstein hired Nick Muzin, a lobbyist and former aide to Republican senators Ted Cruz and Tim Scott. And the second nugget I'll throw in about this, Trump had also pardoned Shalom Weiss. Weiss was not sentenced to life in prison. He was sentenced to 835 years of prison time <laughs> for 27 counts of racketeering conspiracy and 23 counts of interstate transportation of stolen property. He was pardoned by President Trump also on January 19th and the president who represented him, Alan Dershowitz. So it's crazy. Alan Dershowitz. Fun crazy. fact, Alan Dershowitz, Biden voter crazy can can you believe that make this make sense
2: make it make sense (laughs) oh my great story coming out of the interview and now we're going to move on to another quick one it's important for us college students and we have another interview before our final story it's about fafsa the thing that we all filled out i'm sure joe what's the lowdown with fafsa this year
5: yeah if you're a current or a former college student or even if you're a high school senior you're probably familiar with the fafsa form with college applications so if you're fortunate enough to have not filled one out FAFSA stands for free application for federal student aid. It's basically a 100 plus question application that determines your federal financial aid award Well this year's FAFSA form is a bigger convenience for students and parents inconvenience than... Yes yes I'm sorry <laughs> It's a bigger inconvenience for students and parents than it's ever been. Due to a late release of a revised form this year, high school seniors are now left with uncertainty over whether they can afford to attend their dream schools next year. The Department of Education announced an updated form for the 2024-2025 school year on their usual October date, which was promoted as easier to fill out with the hope that more students will be eligible to, uh, to gain aid. But due to glitches in the Department of Ed system, the rollout of the new October form Was actually not available until January. So, the main effect of this three month delay uncertainty for students enrolling in school in in May.
2: Absolutely. Very much an uncertain time for these students. I've seen that a lot of schools have been having to push back their deadlines because they can't get this information in time. I know you guys were looking into this before we started talking about it. Yao, Antonio, anything to add? Yeah,
4: so this actually dates back to 1994 when Bill Clinton put in in motion a bill that banned Pell Grants for people going through prison education systems. That ban was reversed by Congress in 2020, which allowed Pell Grants for incarcerated students students. But that same 2020 deal simplified the application for FAFSA and forgave more than $1 billion in loans for HBCUs. That is exactly what President Biden is trying to put in motion right now. That same bill that passed in 2020, he's finally trying to implement. But as we are seeing, it's leading to slowdowns in the FAFSA process. Antonio.
0: You know, what I'll add to this is my own anecdotal um, experience with FAFSA. And, you know, the, the, the application, which is just questions on questions on questions on questions Especially when you're a high school senior filling it out and like keep in mind my parents were there to help me But when it comes to that type of paperwork, no offense to them. I love them They're not they're not, you know the best help and I remember just constantly pushing it off and off and off because it's like It's something that needs to get done But the process to do it is just so irritating so irritating and now my question to this is if they're three months Delayed right? How exactly do you speed things up to process all of those applications?
2: Vinyl stat we're going to end with, and I think this is going to get some of us really interested in this story going forward. The number of high school seniors filling out the FAFSA is down by about half compared to this time last year. Sharpest drop-off among communities with high shares of black and Hispanic students. So this is hurting prospective college students, disproportionately hurting minority students. So hopefully they get this straightened out before it's too late i mean it's already going to be march soon but hopefully by april and may people can fill out expedited form and get on track because it's important that people who want to go to college should be able to go to college with the financial need that they're entitled to by this form thank you so much for bringing that to our attention we're going to move on we have an interview coming up this one's from me an exclusive look at an upcoming book coming out in june so we got the author really early you're going to find out what it's all about in just a second you're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. I'm Danny Cresenzo joined by CJ Spitaro. She's the director of the MFA in creative writing and the MA in publishing programs at Rosemont College in suburban Philadelphia. She was also one of the founding partners of Philadelphia Stories Magazine and P.S. Books. She's here with me for an exclusive interview about her debut novel, More Strange Than True, which is forthcoming from sagging meniscus press in June 2024. CJ, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. I appreciate it.
2: Of course. So I want to start with what More Strange Than True is about. From what I was able to read, it's a whimsical but surprisingly grounded fantasy tale set in the city of brotherly love. Give our listeners the elevator pitch about the plot.
1: Okay, yeah, that's, it, it is set in Philadelphia. The novel is about a woman named Jewel Jameson who is having a really terrible day. And um, she goes home. She gets a little drunk. She makes a wish that you know, maybe her dog could be her boyfriend. And when she wakes up the next day, someone has somehow turned her dog into a man. So that's the basic crux of the story. And, you know, things kind of go from there.
2: So we're going to get into the inspiration, specifically the Shakespearean inspirations for this book. But what motivated you to take on this specific story for your first novel?
1: Um, well, it's actually, this is the first novel I've written. It's getting published. But it's cert- it's not the first novel that I've written. So um, there, what, what inspired me to, to write this book is I had been working on a collection of short stories Um, And they were all speculative in nature, meaning they had some sort of like magical elements, science fiction, fantasy, um, something like that. Um, And all of the stories had a central uh, romantic relationship in them. So uh, I don't know. I just got it in my head that I mean, I had heard so many people I know, um, especially women, talk about, you know, how lousy their love lives are. And sometimes they really wish that their dog was could be a man and because, you know, they uh, they already loved them and they were so sweet and they wouldn't have to worry about a lot of things. So that, that was kind of where the idea came from. And I originally thought I might write it as a short story. And then once I sat down uh, to start really hashing it out, I realized even though the premise was very small, the story itself was going to be very big. And so it turned into a novel.
2: Yeah, and you go into detail about the st- the specific ways that the character, the dog's name is Oberon, mm-hmm. transitions from being a canine to a human being. And that name is important because it draws from A Midsummer Night's Dream and the book doesn't draw inspiration from Shakespeare exclusively, but it gets the title from Midsummer Night's Dream and the play serves as a plot device. What is it about the Bard's work that made you come back to it for this novel?
1: Um, I am a huge fan of adaptation in general and um, I have been inspired by lots of things and I just honestly I was thinking like okay so I'm gonna have these fairies in the story and um, they need to come from somewhere so I decided why not take them from the master, right? Take them from Shakespeare. And he had this whole sort of world built in um, Midsummer Night's Dream. So um, almost all of the fairies are from a Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, Titania, who's the queen of the fairies in the novel, she has two sisters. One is Iolanthe and the other is Ondine, and they come from mythology. Um, but they also come with preset backstories and so that just was kind of fun to kind of mess with that a little bit, um, like be inspired by it, but not feel tied tied to the story. So,
2: for our listeners, that's fairy f a e r i e, not f a i r y. These are the old yeah. school, old English fairies, Middle English I- fairies
1: yeah what why not right That's, <laughs> that was kind of how it felt
2: you, you've got to be faithful to the source material and for those of our listeners who are a little rusty on shakespeare explain really quickly a midsummer night's dream and why it's so significant
1: the significance was the fact that it was filled with fairies and fairy characters and they're kind of devious fairies you know sometimes fairies are very nice um the plot of the story doesn't have um uh, the plot of the play doesn't have much to do with my novel um in part because the plot of the play is very nonsensical. Um, it's a lot about mistaken identities. And the one thing from the play that plays a big pivotal role in the novel is the um, the magical potion that they use, the love and idleness potion um, that does come into play in the novel. Um, but that's what they use to turn bottom's head into a donkey in the play. And there's there's just lots of silly things going on with mistaken identity and, and all that.
2: Uh, but when it comes to the adaptations, I feel like we have seen some Shakespeare adaptations in recent years. I think back to King Richard. That's what Chris Rock referred to Will Smith as when he walked onto stage, referring yeah. to the adaptation of that Shakespeare work. Uh, what do you think about Shakespeare retellings or reimaginings? Do you feel like we should have more of them. Have less of them. Do people need them more than they think they do? Because obviously his work is timeless, but it, yeah. in terms of penetrating the popular culture, is it still something we should be aspiring to proliferate?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I um, Harold Bloom, the literary critic, you know, called Shakespeare the uh, the inventor of the human, um, and I, I I just feel like the work is so. Um, It sounds very cliche to say it's very, you know, it's so timeless. But um, at the core of all of Shakespeare's works are these emotional truths, um, these relationships, um, even when the stories are very dramatic or like in Midsummer Night's Dream where they kind of don't really make any sense. um, It's just very kind of silly. um, There is still this core emotional truth. And it usually centers around uh, a romantic relationship. Um, I think that's certainly true in Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, you know, the the king and the queen of the fairies are fighting over something really stupid. Um, when you get down to it. But in the end, you know, they're sort of like I don't know really how to reconnect with each other. And I think that's what's at the foundation of all of it. So I I definitely I think there's room for more Shakespeare adaptations. Um, I teach a class in um, the adaptation of Shakespeare um, in all different kinds of forms, not just literature, but film, ballet, opera, TV, everything. And it's a blast for me. So sometimes the students are into it, sometimes not as much. Um, But it's something I really enjoy, so.
2: You're just tuning in to the Hofstra When You Wake Up call. I'm Danny DeCresenza, joined by CJ Spataro. She's the author of the forthcoming More Strange Than True, which comes out in June 2024. And and speaking of your career, you're someone who has focused a lot on writing and teaching others how to write. What did tackling this project teach you? With the fact that it's a you started it as a short story, then it became a full novel, and you're adapting various characters. How did that factor in? What did tackling this project teach you?
1: Um, Well, you know, it's interesting because I do, I have been teaching um, a novel writing classes at Rosemont in the MFA program now for quite a while. Um, And as I said, this isn't my first novel attempt, for sure. Um, And one thing I've kind of learned is that each novel takes on its own process. Like the first time you write a novel, you think, oh, I got this figured out now. I can do this again. And then you sit down to try it again, and it's completely different. So Um, what this book taught me, um, was really a lot about, um, it was like the, really the first fantasy novel I'd written. So I was, I was leaning into, um, you know, really trying to create these worlds. You know, we have the realistic world in Philadelphia and there's a lot of real places that are mentioned um when the characters are in philadelphia and then there's this world called the realm where the fairies are from and so i was kind of just trying to let my imagination kind of run wild a little bit um and 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 kind of have some fun so i i hope the book is funny um in a lot of ways and um that that's part of my goal so I don't know if I really answered your question, but no,
2: no, you've you've clearly been immersed in the English teaching and English writing world for a long time. Every every writing experience is different, mm-hmm. uh, and what what do you hope that the people who do read your book come away with it in terms of so they read the book? What do you want them to come away with from your words and your
8: story?
1: Um, I would hope that they um, that is a positive experience that they have some fun. And that it's also um, a bit of an emotional journey. I know as a reader, I really like to connect with work on an emotional level. And so that's what I strive for in my own work. So hopefully, um, you know, people that come to the novel will, um, at the end, they might feel a certain kind of way. And I hope it, you know, that's kind of what I'm going for. I don't want to give the ending away, but.
2: No, of course. But what (laughs) would you say the main themes of this work are having written it and now it's set for publication looking back what would you say the overarching themes are from the story of this this unfortunate woman who somehow turned her dog into this loving man through magical shenanigans
1: yeah yeah um is that you know in the end you have to be true to yourself And sometimes when you really love someone, you have to do something really painful um, in order to make sure that they have the best possible outcome, even though it's maybe not what you want. So um, yeah, I think that that was kind of like the the big lesson for me. So
2: this is my last question. And I've grown to enjoy asking it to authors that I have on the show. If your book was going to be a movie, who would you want to direct the film and why?
1: Ooh, who would I want to direct the film? Well, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that. I think a lot of times authors think about casting, like who they might want, you know, what actors they might want want to play. I hadn't really thought about directors. I mean, honestly, I feel like I have to say Greta Gerwig. Um, just because mm-hmm. she has a huge imagination, she's super talented, and she's very hot, right? So, like, why not shoot for the the moon, right?
2: C.J. Spitaro, author of the forthcoming More Strange Than True. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking about the book with me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was super fun.
2: And we're back here on the one week of call just a little bit early. Danny, Antonio, Yao, Joe, and Jack. Thank you so much to C.J. Spitaro for That interview, we have one more story, one more story to go. And it's a good one, guys. We've had some good conversations. I think this one might not take the cake, but it'll be up there. So this story got left on the cutting room floor last week. But now, no pun intended, it has made the cut. We all have heard about this epidemic of loneliness plaguing our great nation with a 2023 study. Finding that our generation, Gen Z, is the loneliest out there. One of the unique side effects of such... An epidemic, especially among young people, is that people are turning to technology, artificial intelligence, to satisfy emotional, even romantic needs. I want to focus on the Replica chatbot. Last year, Replica's developers removed a lot of erotic capabilities from the app's characters after some users complained the companions were flirting excessively or making unwanted sexual advances. It reversed its decision after an outcry from other users, some of whom fled to other apps seeking those features. This past June, the Replica team released Blush, an AI dating simulator designed to help people practice dating. Opinion on whether the use of AI can really help people feel companionship versus the legal and ethical pitfalls of opening up so much to a consumer product that can harvest your data varies, as one would imagine.
4: <sighs> nah, this is whack, bro. I know, this I know, yeah, wh- I, know, just, I, know, I, know I know, I know, I know. This is, this is absolutely whack. Let me, I mean... As far as Gen Z being the loneliest, I do agree with that. I feel like there's a problem now with express expressing some type of emotion, right? God forbid I ask one. – we're in a Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. God forbid I ask a girl out at the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. Before I get a yes or no, 30 other people in the school of communication yep. will know about it. So just from that perspective, I can see yeah. why Gen Z has its problems with love. But will I ever turn to an AI dating simulator? Uh, that's That's – that's that's unacceptable to yeah. me. It's
2: just right. your think you're talking to a chatbot, right? It'll never say no. It's such it's it, so it's, damaging. It's agree it's agree it's always going to be agreeable. So it trains you to think like that. That's not how real people are. Yeah, that's corrupt. Yeah, there that's shouldn't corrupt. be a stigma around it, but it shouldn't do anyone any favors. If it's so easy to find love virtually, why find a real partner? Well, you a real partner can actually give you. Something other than a chatbot can. A chatbot is artificial. Uh, It's purely for instant gratification How do we reconcile this expectation of agreeableness if it will always respond to you whenever you text it? It'll respond whenever I send my snapchat AI a a message. It gets back to me right away That's not how most people talk so it's 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 something that you can't simulate You can't train people based on AI where it always will be there for you. It's a personal assistant That's not a, a partner
4: for the, people that are mentally atta- for, for the people that are emotionally attached to these AI simulators, there might be something mentally wrong. Like actually, actually, because to get that emotional attachment through a robot, AI will never replace humans, ever, especially when it comes to a dating simulator, right? As Danny said, it is, it is, not, it is just not the case for you to always be told yes, you're not always gonna get a response in three seconds, you're not always gonna be agreeable so if we're creating this notion by taking part in these simulators that when i actually approach a girl that i like i'm gonna expect her to agree with everything i say i'm gonna expect her to get back to me in three seconds because of these simulators that's not the life we live in which is why ai dating simulators are just unacceptable
3: yeah I've seen stories online about people talking about how they used to be obsessed with these things. And when they told themselves they had to get off it, they just felt really lonely and depressed as a result. Because they knew that it was bad for them, but they, couldn't, but they still liked the instant gratification. They liked feeling valued. Even if that value was coming from something that wasn't really real, wasn't a real person, it was an automatically generated, generated text. It still just brought a lot of happiness to their heart. And they just couldn't help but miss it regardless. And it made them feel more awkward in the real world. And I
4: get that. And I get the instant gratification, and I get how it makes you feel in the moment. But to be so reliant on it, exactly, that shifts the way you approach the real world. That's the issue here. Yeah, right. If I go on an AI dating simulator app and I just want to hear somebody say something nice to me, fine. I get that. Right. We all love to hear great things about ourselves. Right. Most people, at least. But to constantly rely on that over and over and over again, that's where our issues come into play here. you got to have the real human interaction. Nothing's going to replace you actually going up to somebody. That's the issue here. Don't rely so much on these AI dating simulators.
0: Yeah, you know, and and I say this with with all the love in my heart, but like just, just get out of the house. Like it's things like this in, in, in my opinion are just and it comes back to what you were saying where like if you if you if you ask grow out thirty people before you get an answer are gonna know of that and that comes down to social media and just the way information spreads nowadays. So I think it's it's that people are scared. And and that's and that's the problem. There's a big fear. There's a big there's a big stigma around You know feelings and stuff like that because you know everyone says what's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst that can happen is Business and information that you thought was private now becomes public and everyone knows what you did and whether or not You know and first of all on face value like that shouldn't be something people should make fun of you for but as we know in today's day and age you can catch heat for practically anything and you will you know Murphy's law uh, everything that could possibly go wrong will go wrong but I don't think that turning to AI is gonna help that because if you train your brain like Danny was saying to just say yes yes this is how it's gonna work out listen the real world is not a simulation to all the skeptics out there i'm sorry it's not we're not in the matrix the solution
2: is more nuanced than just go outside but the sentiment is correct i think there has to be systematic ways to tackle loneliness and i think it's more than just instituting maybe a public policy or starting a new campaign to get people to be more social it starts beyond that but i think seeing this trend it's definitely worrying a little bit that we're out of time unfortunately on the Hofstra morning wake-up call thank you so much for joining us the show will continue for the rest of the week and without further ado this is the going to be the next couple hours of off the charts on 88.7 FM radio Hofstra University have a great rest of your Wednesday have a great rest of your week don't forget to tune in every weekday from 7 to 9 a.m.